Good morning, Restoration. Let me pray and we'll get started in this next bit of teaching from Philippians. God, we're so thankful to be together um, in small house churches or um, God, even on our own this morning. I'm asking that you would search us as a community, that you would pull out of us um, the things that we need to see when it comes to our life, when it comes to our relationships. Uh, this morning, God, do something, redeem things in our lives that we feel are unredeemable and broken and um, off limits. God, we just see in the life of Paul that you do work, that you transform us. And uh, God, we're just asking for that this morning. We pray these things in your name. Amen. <clears throat> okay, church, you've probably already read uh, Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. This is a continuance of the letter that Paul is writing as a thank you back to the people in Philippi. And I just want to remind you that Paul is in prison. And Paul is in prison because he's an enemy of the state. He is going around, he's been going around um, out in the open, in the street, um, proclaiming that Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Kyrios. And it has landed him in prison. In fact, he started in Jerusalem, then you get transferred to different people, and now he is in Rome. And he is in basically federal prison. And Paul's friends are worried about him. His house church in Philippi is worried about him. Um, they may have heard news. We don't know. We don't know if Timothy sent a letter. But they gathered together funds um, to care for Paul while he's in prison because Paul, as a prisoner in Rome, you have to care for yourself. You cannot work and you need people to basically give you food and uh, clothing and um, Epaphroditus shows up with this gift from the church in Philippi, but he's also got questions. The people want to know how he's doing. They want to know what he's uh, thinking. And he sends back this letter in a reply, and he says, thanks for the cash. Uh, thanks, you saved my life. Um, and here's how things are going. And he's, he's basically telling them what has happened to him. And so what we know of in the life of Paul is that he's sent many letters to different churches. And, and two uh, different letters um, he sent to the church in Corinth, and he talked about how his life was and what has happened to him. And I'm just going to read both of these for you. This first one comes from 1 Corinthians 4, uh, 9 through 13. It goes like this, for it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like those condemned to die in the arena, we have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to human beings. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honored, we are dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty, we are in rags, we are brutally treated, we are homeless, we work hard with our own hands, we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. 
When we are slandered, we answer kindly. When we have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to this moment. So the list, just in case you were underlining anything, he's like, we're made to be spectacles, we're condemned to die, we're weak, we're fools, we're dishonored, we're hungry and thirsty, we are in rags, we're brutally treated, we are homeless, cursed, persecuted, slandered, the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world. Um, does that sound like an easy life to you? Um, and then he goes on in 2 Corinthians, his next letter to the Corinthians, he says, Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way in great endurance, in troubles and hardships and distresses, beatings, imprisonments, riots, in hard work, sleepless nights and hunger, in purity, understanding, patience and kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in sincere love, in truthful speech and in the power of God with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left, through glory and dishonor, bad report and good report, regarded as imposters. He goes on, he says that we're as unknown, we're dying, we're beaten, we're sorrowful, we're poor, and we have nothing. This is what has happened to Paul. And if Paul was to write a book, um, like a, a popular Christian book, the title of it be, would be Your Worst Life Now. This would be, I mean, talk about a rough story. And in our context, this is hard for us to hear because we're actually constantly, as American Christians, fighting against the narrative that once you accept Jesus and start to follow Jesus, that Jesus is supposed to, um, that in this belief transaction, that Jesus is actually supposed to make our life better, fulfill us, um, bring about um, our comfort and our convenience. Um, we're saved from really hard things. In fact, there's a really poor version of the end times that says that we are going to um, miss out on all the difficult things. And some of that thinking creeps into how we live our lives. Uh, there's a great book, I've been quoting it, Randolph Richards. He says, at some point in this generation, take up your cross and follow me, changed into come to Jesus and he'll make your life better. And church, we've got to consistently push against the narrative that says that following Jesus makes our life better. We have to push against it because that is not the story of Paul. And Paul talks about imitating him as he imitates Christ Jesus. And so Paul is giving us a glimpse into his life. And he says, these are the things that have happened to me. And so with that in the back of your head, let's turn back to Philippians. The top of the list of the things that have happened to Paul are, he is now in prison. He is probably uh, many pounds underweight, uh, frail, and, um, and not living his best life. And he has been in prison. He's actually been under guard for four years up to this point. But Paul is an apostle, you might say. And things like this shouldn't happen to apostles. And you would think it kind of like, well, if Paul's in prison, it means he's out of the game. 
He's not in the game. Think of a star athlete with a broken leg. Okay, hang up the season, hang up the cleats. Um, he's not useful anymore. And, and the exact opposite has actually happened. Uh, Paul actually says, what has happened to me? All these things, these difficult, painful, hardship things, including prison, has actually served to advance the gospel. Now, the word advance in Greek is prokope, sorry, um, I had to look at my notes. And um, it's, it's the idea of a Roman army on the march. And out in front of the Roman army are the engineers who are hacking away at the brush and, and in a sense, kind of laying a road, pushing through the wilderness uh, to, to allow the army to advance. And so he says in verse thing, and he just kind of give two examples here, um, verse 13, as a result, it has become clear that the advance of the gospel has happened um, throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. So the advance of the gospel is happening, he says, because of everything that has happened to me, uh, the advance of the gospel is happening. And what we need to understand is what the palace guard is. The palace guard is not some rent-a-cops. Um, they're not some, um, don't think prison guards. These are the elite fighting soldiers of the Roman Empire. These are the, the Praetorium Guard. And historians think uh, that these were the ones actually involved in the assassination of Caligula. And uh, they put Claudius on the throne. So think of regime, regime change. These are the ones you would want on your side. These are the the elite fighting men of Rome. And he says, and I am in chains for Christ. Meaning everybody knows that I'm here because of this. And I can just imagine uh, the conversations that Paul is having with the guards. Um, historians believe that the guards were rotated in and out every four hours. And so Paul is getting a new guard every four hours. And so he's got four hours of some time with a guard. And so my guess is he gets to know them over all this time. He, I'm sure the question comes up. Uh, I'm told that one of the number one questions you get asked in prison is what are you in for? And I can imagine Paul going, um, well, I'm glad you asked because here's why I'm in here. And I could hear him just, uh, just saying here, you remember that guy, Jesus, of uh, the Nazarene uh, that a few a number of years back you guys uh, executed in Rome. It was kind of a big deal. I don't know if you remember hearing about that, um, but um, it turns out here's why I'm in prison. I'm in prison because he actually walked out of the tomb. Um, he is Messiah. He is King of the Universe. He is actually Lord, and Caesar's not. And I believe that with every fiber of my being. It is, that news has actually radically changed and transformed my life. I used to be this guy, but now I'm this. I used to think this, and now I think this. I used to like chase after and hunt people down and beat them and kill them because they believed in this guy. And I met this guy on the road to heading to uh, Damascus, and he loved me and changed my life. And now I've just spent my whole life telling people, 
that Jesus is Lord. And I could just imagine the guards going, oh yeah, that's, that's definitely why you're in prison. Uh, because if that news got out, um, that would be empire-changing news, if that's actually true. And the point is, uh, the empire's agenda with Paul was to shut him up, was to keep him from announcing this. And the question I want to ask us is, did that work? No, it didn't work at all. And it says in verse uh, 14, he says, And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. And this is a fascinating line. Because I could imagine in this day and time, it's not like how you and I experience following Jesus and announcing that Jesus is Lord in our world. Um, although some people are annoyed with Christians and think that we're a joke and, and maybe even hate the idea of God, um, you got to understand, Paul is in Rome, the epicenter of Caesar, and scholars put the writing of Philippians, and they can nail it pretty close, at around 61 to 62 AD. And what you need to understand about this time in human history is Caesar Nero is on the throne. And Nero, um, you can read up about Nero. There's so much about this man. He was just He's, a, he's definitely an interesting man. And one of the things you need to know is he was beginning to go insane. That there was, um, people actually noticed a change in his, his demeanor and his life. And it was believed in and around this time, uh, some debate whether it was before or after, uh, Caesar, as he goes insane, um, uh, the, the setting of the fire of Rome, so, so Rome is set on fire, and um, this happens after the writing of this, and, blames the, and Nero blames the followers of Jesus for the fire, and what followed is an empire-wide persecution of followers of Jesus. Uh, some scholars think millions throughout the empire were killed uh, became martyrs for their allegiance to Jesus. And so if you follow Jesus in Rome, in the Roman Empire, there were definitely times where you were scared. And there were definitely times that if you mentioned Jesus or talked to your friends about Jesus, there was a huge risk for you. Now, this is uh, maybe not exactly that time, but it was still risky. And they get inspired by Paul. And notice Paul doesn't give them a, uh, a fight back message, uh, a message to go, you know, stick it to the man or anything like that. Um, but remember back to the first Sunday in Philippians, we talked about that the main message of this letter is clear. That based on how Roman rhetoric was and how letters was written, were written, we know that the main piece of this message was no matter what happens, Paul says, all of you, no matter what happens, all of you live as citizens of the gospel of the king. And so he's, he's giving this letter. He's, he's in prison. He's encouraging them. And the empires, they're, they're trying to make an example of Paul. They're trying to shut Paul up and make an example of him. But it actually backfires. Um, and he's like, prison? 
Bring it. He's like, death? Let me tell you about something called resurrection. And, um, and what happened to me, Paul says, has actually served to advance the gospel, to advance the royal announcement that Jesus is Lord. And so this is actually all this stuff, all the beatings and the whippings and the imprisonment, all has actually served to advance that message, to push that message through into new places. And so, but, he, but it's not all roses. Look at this, verse 15. He says, It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ, preach the king out of selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in change. So he's like, good news, bad news. Good news is the king is being preached. And that's great news. Uh, the bad news is some of them are doing it for wrong reasons, whether it's for we don't know totally, but money or fame or, or power. And they're like, hey, Paul's in prison. Here's our chance to get our name out there. We don't really know all that he means on that. And you'd think Paul would be totally down in the dumps, that he would be so depressed by this. But he goes on in verse 18. But what does it matter, he says, the important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. So, I mean, literally, Paul is, Paul's crazy. I mean, it's, this, is, this is insane. Like, he is just overjoyed that the gospel is preached. And he's like, what really matters is that the king is announced, that the king is preached. And he says, because of this, I rejoice. And there we are again, restoration, uh, that pesky word, joy, or rejoice. Joy is the noun, rejoice is the verb. Paul uses it 16 times in this book. It is, joy is the undercurrent of this whole letter, is about joy. And, and, um, and where is Paul again? Oh yeah, prison. And he is beat down, and it's kind of a shameful place to be. And he's about to stand trial, and the outcome of that trial is life or death, literally life or death. And, and he can rejoice. And he's sending this letter back, and, and he's like, and I rejoice. It's like you can't keep Paul down. And um, every time this word is used, we're going to look at it, every single time. And, and we get a, a chance to peek behind the curtain and see how life with joy actually is and how uh, so many times we miss joy because we feel like it's connected to our actual circumstance, our actual life. And so I really just have one thought for today. It's one long thought, but it's, it's one thought for today. And I want to talk about something called the redemptive edge. And the redemptive edge is this well, it's a, here's a prime example of how God, the God we worship okay, can take the evil that we experience and turn it around. Um, odds are you've experienced evil and you've experienced pain and trauma. And the idea here is that the God we worship is able to take evil and cut into it with redemption and dig out the good. 
That's the idea. Because we believe that is what God does. And please listen to me and please do not misunderstand me. This is a very important thing to talk about. I am not saying uh, evil is God's will um, or it's part of God's plan. I'm not saying that at all. Paul being in prison is not part of God's plan and it's not God's will. It's evil. The things that happened to Paul, the beatings and the whippings and the, uh, you know, the, the persecution and being chased out of town and stoned, those are all evil. And they were not God's plan. Um, but in a strange way, God works in that. So I want to make sure we're super clear. Um, when followers of Jesus bump into evil, when we are living our lives and we've come face to face with evil, um, some of us more than others, but there's no immunity to it, okay? Um, we, here's the thing. We live in a war zone. We live in a world where many forces are at work, some who are opposed to God, some who are for God, uh, some spiritual beings that are opposed to God, the gods of this world. Um, I would refer you back to last fall. We did a series called The Flesh, the World, and the Devil, and there's so much I think that we get wrong um, and we misread scripture when we think about our world. And so usually what happens to followers of Jesus is we end up in one of two camps, okay, when it comes to difficult things happening to us. Um, some, the first camp, are some people just get angry at God. God, why did you allow this to happen to me? Um, some of this comes from our false idea that following Jesus should make our life better and more convenient and comfortable, and that if we do certain religious things, that God should show up and take care of other things in our lives. And this comes from this really uh, wonky view called moralistic therapeutic deism, which basically sees God as a therapeutic God who's mostly removed from our lives. And if we stay moral, that God would actually swoop in, uh, take care of us, and then let us go about our day. And um, it, it comes up, I hear this all the time, like, I used to do this for God, I used to serve here, I used to go to the food bank, I used to read my Bible, and then this happens in my life. Okay, God, where are you? Because I've done, I've done all this stuff. I've read these religious books. I went to seminary. I did this and I did that. Okay, God, you owe me. And so sometimes we fall into this uh, trap of, of we get angry at God because God somehow made this happen to us. The other camp that we fall into is this idea that God is in control. And this is more of the campy version, right, of how to deal with evil. Um, and you're never going to hear me say that. Like when you go through something difficult in your life, you go through a miscarriage or a car accident, um, and we sit down knee to knee, eye to eye. I'm never going to tell you, well, God's in control. Because, uh, or it's all part of God's plan. That, that was not God's plan. It's not God's plan at all. 
And I just don't buy that. Why? Because here's my beef with both sides, whether you blame God for it or uh, God's in control and, and he'll make a way. Um, ultimately, both sides blame God for the evil. Both options put the onus of responsibility on the shoulders of God. And I just think it's way more complex than that. And I think we live in a world with multiple forces at work. That because of free will, that there are things happening in this world and people choose and spiritual beings choose and the gods of this world who are very real choose to push against God's plan for a flourishing, thriving humanity. And so unemployment and miscarriages and depression, mental health, uh, maybe, maybe uh, that is uh, the enemy sabotaging our grace like the grace that's inside of us that wants to transform us. Maybe there's powers at work. Maybe it's not God's plan, but God wants to use it and transform you and, and extract the good. So no matter what, the tomb is empty. That's what we know. That's what we know from the writings of Paul and the writings in the New Testament and the stories and the accounts of Jesus. Listen, the gospel hope, okay, this is, this is really clear. The gospel hope is not that everything that happens to you is the will of God. That's not the gospel hope, that everything that happens to you is the will of God. The gospel hope is that no matter what happens to you, God is with you. God is with you. God is spirit and as close to us as the air we breathe his spirit his counselor his 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 presence is as close as the air we breathe that means in your past god was never far from you meaning in that moment of abuse in your life god was with you and torn apart just like you. God didn't cause that abuse to happen. That was evil. God is a suffering God with a suffering people. And that is the tension because at the same time, the tomb is empty, right? That, that Jesus has left the tomb, which means that that is the first fruits, that is the the sign of what is to come and what is to come is that you and I will one day be resurrected. And that is why Paul has this incredible joy that no matter your path, you follow a good God who is able to bring good out of evil, to dig out of the evil with redemption, good. To wipe, one day wipe away every tear to set things back into the order they were supposed to be in. Now, there's this famous line in Romans, and it gets misquoted because it only it's like a truncated version of what Paul is saying. And you've probably heard this before. Um, it's verse 28 of chapter 80. says, And we know that in all things God works for the good. And a lot of people stop there, and they say, Oh, you know, in all things God works for the good. 
Uh, don't stop there. There's no period there. Paul doesn't end his thought there. If you quote that line and you stop there, you, in my opinion, are committing heresy. You are com committing uh, a, a, a version of, of communicating who God is poorly. Um, and most heresy happens when we forget the beginning and the end and we just take the chunks that we want. So, so a car accident, a pandemic, um, a suicide, um, and, and we know all things happen, all things God works for good. It's like, what world are you living in? If that is your response to hard things and difficult things, um, I want you to read the rest of the verse. The rest of the verse is, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Meaning those who love God. Meaning we are called, we are set apart for God's good purpose. Meaning if you've tethered your life to Jesus, I mean, this is going to sound like a horrific <laughs> image, okay? But literally what Scripture tells us is this world is a sewer. This world has been corrupted by sin. And when we tether our life to Jesus, there begins this process of Jesus pulling us through the sewer line to get us to the place that he has actually created us to be. And this idea that we're going to just hit stuff and it's just, it's not a great journey. That life comes at us with a whole bunch of stuff. <laughs> and, uh, but he says you're called according to his good purpose. That, that when we wake up in the morning and we, we again, I mean literally almost every, you just kind of lay out your life. God, I'm here. This is my life. These are my mistakes. This is my, this is my trauma. This is my uh, pride. This is my, here's my life. Here are my finances. Here are my hurts and my sorrows. Here are my dreams. And, and, and here's me. And we unload those things onto the shoulders of the king. And we say, your will be done. And it's in that surrender it's in that surrender that God is able to transform us, that God is able to be able to cut into the pain in our life and, and begin to extract the good, to take the evil that was not God's plan and cut into it with redemption. And he's like, the ultimate plan of God was you and me in the garden flourishing right relationships with each other, right relationships with creation, right relationships with ourselves and with God, like this beautiful picture of flourishing. So we are not in any way trying to imagine evil as good. That's Buddhism. That's not the gospel. Your worship, you worship a God that works for the good. And so the majority of you, you know that, and, and that's a review, and you're like, thanks for that. But I just want to finish with this. Here's the twist for me. 
So every week uh, or many weeks, I prepare a teaching and we've been thinking about his book of Philippians and I've been wrestling with each chunk as we go and I write a, a long distance in advance and chew on things in my own life and um, the upside and downside of my job is that I have to live what I talk about. <laughs> that there's some level of credibility in that. And it's not that I master things and then I tell you about them, because trust me, that is not the case. But I wrestle with these things and I'm thinking about these things. And it, what it means is I tend to have to work through some of this first. You're hearing this for the first time. I've been thinking about this for two plus weeks. And this one's been rough to process for me because I just want to break down the difference between myself and Paul. So I don't think I define good the same way that Paul defines good. And this is what I'm wrestling with in my life right now. For me, good equals my happiness. Good equals my comfort. Good equals my security. Good equals me. What's good for me? And am I alone in that? Talk about yourselves. But uh, I think Paul defines good as to advance the gospel. I think Paul defines good as to advance the gospel, to advance the royal announcement that Jesus is Lord. I think that's what Paul thinks good is. And keep in mind the entire passage of Paul, this entire thing, is an answer to a question from the church of Philippi that was much like, how are you? Paul, how are you? And it turns out that the question, Paul, how are you? And Paul, how is the gospel? Are the same question. I personally, I can categorize things in my life. We can talk how I am, and then we can talk about the advance of the gospel. And I don't think I have them as linked as Paul does. I think Paul's life is swallowed up in the gospel. The question I'm asking myself is, is mine. Paul says all these things have served to advance the gospel. And does Paul sound like a victim in any of this? No. Not at all. Paul, it seems like Paul's on top of the world in prison. And I think the reality is that we have a role to play in our calling. Our role in evil and in God's redemption is, is active, not passive. Many of us sit around and we think, oh, we need God to move. We need God to act. And what Paul is saying, no, you are called according to God's good purposes. That you and I, in the midst of all the craziness, the pandemic, the chaos, the division, all that kind of stuff, that we're actually called to partner with God to redeem the gospel. And that our lives should be swallowed up in the gospel. Now, you and I, each of us, have our own stories of the evil we've perpetrated, the evil that's been done to us, the pain, the brokenness, we all have this. And God actually wants to redemptively dig out the good. And the goal is to imitate Paul and that 
One day, even though right now I can't tell you that my goal, my life is inextricably linked to the gospel, I hope that one day that it becomes more and more, more and more linked to the gospel so that when you ask me, how are you? And how is the gospel advancing? They're the same answer. They're literally, that's my life. And to get to a place where my happiness and the advancement of the gospel, the announcement that Jesus is Lord are tethered together, are glued together. Because your joy will no longer be connected at that moment. You know, if my, if my life is connected ultimately to, and my joy is connected to the gospel, it's no longer connected to my finances or my future or whether you're married or not or whether you get that advancement in your career or not, or whether your health deteriorates or not, or how your physique is, or any of those things, our joy will be in Jesus. And what I wanna do as we close is a quick exercise before you go into discussion. Everybody um, should have been given a three by five card in your house church. If you're not in a house church, um, grab a piece of paper, or um, if you wanna do kind of a digital journal, um, what I want you to do is on the first line, um, I want you to um, just fill out uh, what has happened to me. I want you to think back in your life, what has happened to me? Maybe something recent, maybe something from your childhood. What has happened to me? What evil has happened to me? What pain has happened to me? What has happened to me? And um, if you're in a house church or you want to, I want you to pause right now and finish filling that out. Next, the next line, I want you to fill this out. I want you to write the redemptive edge. How has God cut into that? Meaning, over time, and some of you may be going, he hasn't yet. It's too fresh. It's too painful. It's still right there, and that's fine. And maybe you need to leave, leave that blank. But maybe some of you have had enough life now, enough walking with Jesus, that you've been able to see how God has cut into that evil in your life and taken out the good and shown you the good. And so I want you to take a minute and fill that part out. You can pause here. Finally, here's what I want you to do. I want you to fill in this blank. Because of blank, I rejoice. Because of blank, I rejoice. Now what I want you to do in your house churches is to the degree in which you are brave, I want you to be as vulnerable and as authentic as you can. And this is a process for us to get to know each other better, to encourage each other. And here's the thing, your good, it's meant for all of us. We need to hear from you. If you're not ready yet, that's okay. Um, but I would encourage you to finish this time together in your community. Let me pray. Father, thank you for a flexible, gracious, 
courageous group of people call themselves followers of Jesus and have linked arms together in this season in homes and on the Zoom call. Now, this isn't easy. And many of us are just used to uh, sneaking into church, maybe trying to be as little as, as anonymous as we can. But you're calling us to more. You're calling us to know each other. You're calling us to participate, to, to bring something about in the transformation of each other. And God, I believe you're doing something today. And so will you meet us right here in our conversations together? trusting that you are after the good in each of us, that we are unfinished works, that you are continuing to do a good work in us. And for some of us, it literally feels like we're being drugged through a sewer, that we are, we are, we are broken and hurting. God, some of us feel like we are far from you. We feel like we're in a wilderness right now. Uh, God, we have relational pain and we have so much heaped on us right now. But God, we trust that you are God of redemption and that you are going to cut into this and you are going to take out the good. We pray these things in your name. Amen.